You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. Hey, David. How's it going? I'm doing great, Sean. How are you? I cannot complain. Uh, not too much going on this week, um, uns- except my, I guess the highlight of the week was Sunday. Beth went to brunch with her girlfriends. And so I decided to stay home and make a fire and watch soccer on my laptop with mimosas of my own. And that was a great, great day. Now, would you make the fire outside and then also bring out the laptop? Yeah. And so if, if anybody's like listening to this and saying, Sean knows how to make fires um, by himself, that's so cool. Um, you're wrong. I, I got a starter log and then I put like cardboard on top of it. Then I put the big logs on and it works this time. So. so I'm getting really good at almost always starting the fire with just one match. I did another fire probably last week. But uh, my secret is the get a toilet paper tube and put some dryer lint in there. Oh, interesting. I'm going to do, I'm gonna have to do a little, I'll have to do a video, maybe a step-by-step how to start a fire. And, and with you mean one like light. the lint from your clothes? Yeah. Because yeah. um, the, the fabric softener is extremely flammable. So. You're like an, like an urban outdoorsman. You just. Oh yeah. But no. And, fantastic. Uh, and splitting the wood, the kindling real fine. And yeah, I should do a little, should do a little tutorial. We could have a YouTube channel on that where we just like share our survival skills, but like, we're clearly not, we're not ready to like live off, live in the woods. If we, no. if we chose that route, but. I used to have a garden with a drip system in Albuquerque you need a drip system to keep your plants alive. Cause they'll, they'll dry out in a day or two if you don't water them every day, but I'm not, yeah. I'm not there yet to, uh, yeah. Having a, a homestead garden. Awesome. Um, maybe one day. Um, so how's your book, your book coming? It's good. I might put out a little update on uh, Instagram this week. I, I haven't, haven't gotten as far as I want to, but I have a good idea. So there'll be a little Instagram post and uh, hopefully, hopefully I do write something on Friday. I think I'm going to this week. Awesome. Cool. Can't wait. Cool. So today, I guess we're talking about the story of Thor, the fisherman, which is found in uh, two sources that we're going to get into a second. Did you, was there anything that you wanted to say um, in the lead up to this? Oh no. Yeah. Just the, yeah. The, the Thor, the fisherman that it's in both the the prose edda in the Gilfaganing uh, chapter 48 and in the poetic edda. Hems and this Kavita. is why I asked you, I wanted to hear you pronounce it. Yep. Heims Kavita. I was, I, I thought it was going to be Himsviva, like just, I, I was going to ignore the K, which I feel like in old Norse, you get to ignore some letters, but I just decided to choose which one I'm, which ones I'm going to ignore. Himsviva. Yeah. I'm just going to say that. And but it's people the, can. What it's supposed to mean is the, the lay of Heimir. Often they would, uh, but that just means Heimer's poem, basically. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So we can we can go ahead and get started then. So last week we wrapped up our discussion on Utgard or Loki, where Thor and company, Loki included, traveled to Utgard only to lose competitions that were encouraged to them by their host, one of which led to a display of Thor's inability to pick up a cat. However, he did successfully lift up one of the cat's paws. At the end of Utgard or Loki, Utgard or Loki revealed that their competitors were actually tricks. And they represented for- forces of nature it's themselves, um, one of which being old age, another being fire, another one being thoughts. And in the case of the cats, the Midgard serpent, who is going to bring on Ragnarok, Jormungandr. Funny note here was that Loki is actually the father of Jormungandr and was present. However, this co- coincidental family reunion didn't come up in the story. So after Thor went home, Snorri tells us that Thor vowed revenge on Jormungandr for taking part in this slight and then decides to go after him, which leads us to this week's episode where we discuss Thor's fishing trip. As David mentioned, where this gets interesting is that Thor's fishing trip is actually told in both the Poetic Edda 
and the Proceta, which means that the stories contain many differences. Both stories do, however, include Thor's fishing companion as a giant named Hymir, who is the poem's namesake. They both include Jormungandr as Thor's target, and lastly, they also contain a similar method of Thor using bait to catch the Midgard serpent. So as a direct sequel to last week's episode, which was from the Proceta, and to remain consistent with the Norse timeline, which I had mentioned but had not started working on yet, I will briefly summarize uh, Gilfagenin uh, chapter 48, and then David is going to take some time to discuss some of the stanzas from the poetic Edda poem, here we go, Hymns Svida. That sounds good, right? Oh, yeah. No, I think we should take a moment with all the pronunciations. You know, it's interesting. I'm going yeah. to try to get more things right this this week or as we go on. But I always like to call him Jormungand, but that's because when, it's, I, when I was like a little kid, I'd play the game God of Thunder on uh, the MS-DOS before Windows 3.1 there was a, a God of Thunder game where Thor had to defeat, I always call it Jormungand. So I really have to stop calling it, using it, saying it as a J and actually pronounce it as a Y for old German. But I'm going to call him Jormungand. But I know Sean uh, goes, I think with the Norse rather than the old German, the Jormungander. So people are confused why we're doing that. I have my reasons. And... Well, it's there's a chance I could be saying it all wrong as well. I feel like that's one thing that this podcast is missing. Somebody just to, you know, just like get mad at us when we say things incorrectly. Somebody that like knows Old Norse, but. And then that was the, the, fun, the fun thing. So in one of the books, I forget which book now, but trying to actually get some of these words right, because there's that, they, in Old Norse, there's a letter for TH. So it's not the letter T and H. It's the symbol, it's the thorn rune or the, yeah, that, mm-hmm. that I've uh, talked about before. And then there's also this one that's a D and it has a little hash, like kind of through part of the D, right? And you see that in all kinds yeah. of words, like a, a Dumla has it, and Hemsgvida uh, right, has it in there too. So they're both a TH sound, but they're somewhat different. So Sean, I think we should practice it just for fun, and our audience can practice, can try along with us, right? That uh, So the, the TH, the Thorn Rune, is a TH like in Thin and Thor, right? So that's one sound, Th, like Thin, Thor. And then the D sh- uh, letter or shape is kind of a TH sound, but it's like the one in the word the. So you think the difference between thin and the. And I know I end up going okay. with like a very deep voice. So like a thumla, right? It's like the is a different sound than Thor. Thin Thor. The, yeah, I guess they, they both appear in a thumla, which I thought was a thumla and not a dumla. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, it is a, it's the D. And that's where, you know, when it's turned into English, sometimes they'll take that D letter and they'll turn it into a TH, or they might do mm-hmm. a D and an H. No, very... <laughs> <laughs> Very well, fun well, stuff. Yeah. I'm just glad that I'm just glad to know that we've been saying it incorrectly, but that's okay because I think everyone probably is. Yeah, that we that we're just saying it with our American accent, and there's a lot of uh, regional American accents anyway. So, so n- nobody expects anything from us anyway. <laughs> awesome. Um, cool. So, so I guess moving back to the introduction here, the fact that we have two different accounts for this story is pretty cool in general, and sort of tells us a story in itself. So, like with Proseta Gilfagenin, chapter forty-eight. Did Snorri change the source story to fit his own narrative or timeline of events? Meaning, was he selective of which content he wanted to include in his more so Christianized version of the stories? Or did he simply not have enough material and needed to use his own imagination to fill in the pieces? So David, I know um, you had something on Hymnsvida, excuse me, um, maybe being fragments of three different poems that you're going to discuss in a little bit, correct? Right, yeah, no, and, and this one... You know that question you just brought up. I'll probably answer it more even by the end. But I really like this poem when I started reading it because it is, you know, the the authors and the translators say it's a very flawed poem. Both that 
it seems like it wasn't one original piece. Like they took many of those, you know, the oral tradition poems, mm -hmm. right? And tried to make it fit together into one story. There's pieces actually of the document that are missing. So there's lines where we just don't know what's written there. And that the, the version of the manuscript that is, you know, hasn't been lost to history that people can actually look at now is probably not the version exactly that Snorri is looking at, but Snorri knew things that are not in this version, that you mm. know, the line's missing or a section's missing. So that part of, you know, what is a uh, the Norse timeline that Sean wants to create, right? This this poem throws a big, like, wrench into it where it's, it makes it very confusing, but there's something I like about that, yeah. Yeah, if they can figure it out with the Zelda timeline, I feel like we'll be fine. We'll be able to do it. It might, it might be that it's split. It's kind of like, uh, yeah. Like if you had to split the matrix into two separate servers or uh, you can make a Bitcoin joke there, but I don't understand Bitcoin that well. So Awesome. Uh, it's funny. We do have a matrix joke coming up, I think. So one last thing that I, I found interesting in uh, my reread, but also research of Hymnsida uh, is that it contains many kennings, which we're going to go over um, in a little bit. Kennings were described in detail by Snorri in the Prosetta. And I think Hymnsida is one of the only like poems or like one, yeah, one of the only poems in the poetic Edda that also uses kennings in its alliteration, if that makes sense. So I think that's yeah, pretty. It'll cool. be like three or six kennings in one sentence, and you're like really trying to figure out what does this thing even mean because you have to know the kennings. Yeah, definitely. Um, so before we get into Hemsfida, again, I'm going to go ahead and review uh, uh, chapter 48 of Gilfaganine, which is found in the Prosetta, uh, written by Snorri Sturluson. And keep in mind, when we discussed Garda Loki, those were chapters 44 through 47. So chapter 48, obviously, in Thor the Fisherman takes, so, takes off like right where that left off. Thor leaves Thridvanger shortly after returning from Utgard with no companions or goats. And he plans to go after Jormungandr, the Midgard serpent. He disguises himself as a young boy and comes to the house of a giant called Hymir. Thor stays there the night's. And, and one thing I wanted to note here is that you see Thor using a disguise like his father often does. And he uses it probably because Hymir would not have given Thor shelter for the night because he is well known as a giant killer. Also wanted to make a note that Loki himself also uses disguises in his adventures. So it's something that you see pretty, um, pretty often in all the stories. So the next morning, they go fishing after slight persuasion by Thor. Hymir initially claims that, in quotes, the young boy would get scared, prompting Thor to one of to once, of course, to hit him in the head with his hammer, in which he cooled down the thought prior to doing so, so he didn't do it. Thor decides to use the head of an ox called Himenhrat as bait. So they, they go into the water. Once in the water, Thor continues rowing past the spot where Hymir usually gets his fish from, to Hymir's dismay. Once they continue rowing, Away from land, Hymir grows scared that they might disrupt the world serpent, Jormungandr. So they eventually stop, and Thor casts his line only to hook the world serpent, Jormungandr, with the ox's head. So Jormungandr snaps back, and a fight ensues, with Thor trying to lure in the serpent. His foot eventually went, goes through the bottom of the boat, and he needed to brace himself on the bottom of the seafloor to catch Jormungandr. Thor eventually got Jormungandr on the boat and pulled out his hammer for the final blow. However, at the last minute, Hymir cuts the line due to his fright. So I think one thing I want to note here, and I made this joke in a previous episode when we did Harbard's Lod and on the story with Thor and the Ferryman, you see here that Thor must have either grown <laughs> as he was catching Jormungandr or been insane, insanely large in this story to fit the story's narrative. Because if you look back to Harbard's Lod, Thor was unable to cross a river 
and Odin, as uh, disguised as a ferryman, was preventing him from getting across the river. So again, it's just one of those things that it, it fits the story for Thor to be able to put his foot through the boat and then go to the bottom of the seafloor, whereas for Harbard's law, he was not able to do so. He was not even able to cross a river. But also, Thor just didn't want to get his uh, sword wet. He didn't want to get his sword rusty. So that was part did of it. Did they already explain that? Did they explain why that's canon? One of the things Odin was making fun of him is, uh, why don't you come across here? And he's like, well, I would, but I don't want my, my sword to get rusty. Okay. Well, then I'm going to say it doesn't make sense because he could have hopped over maybe. But, well, but who knows? Maybe the river was very wide. <laughs> but thanks. Uh, so anyway, when... Jormungandr is sliding back into the water. Thor throws his hammer at him, and nobody knows if the hammer struck, um, which we, we both know. Thor then punches Hymir overboard and rows back to land. So once again, in this week's story, at least according to the Prosetta, Thor fails once again. Did no, I miss anything, our, David? Or <laughs> no, that's that's my the uh, the the common theme is the the frustrations of Thor, right? That's the the stories we're telling. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely him getting upset at something and no, then I, not. I have a, I, have, I have thoughts because it's kind of included in the uh, the poetic version as well. Okay, I, I do have some thoughts on that. What is it representing the the thing that Thor can't quite defeat? He keeps trying to defeat. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, then before we we pass it off to you, so you can discuss uh, Hymnsvida. I wanted to make uh, note of something that I've always found interesting. And I know in previous episodes, we've discussed um, the idea of fate uh, versus free will or how anybody's life can be kind of considered both of them. So this ending where we know that Jormungandr is fated to bring around Ragnarok, we know like what happens at Ragnarok. So he's fated to be there. And keep in mind, Thor was about to kill him, like in this story, but Hymir, the giant, cut the line due to him being so scared. So it seems like fate was right there to be destroyed in the case of Jormungandr's story. And just one giant made the call to cut this line, and then fate is able to get back into what was supposed to happen. And it reminds me of a scene from The Matrix. So I know I know we discussed some uh, pop culture references that you didn't understand, David. I take it you did read, you did watch The Matrix when it came out? I have seen The Matrix. It's been a while, but I think I'll, I think I'll okay. know the scene. But, yeah. So they're in The Matrix, and they're sabotaged by uh, one of their uh, colleagues, Cypher, who gets out of The Matrix and then kills them by pulling their cord as they're like under one by one. And then because it's a movie and he has to make it like very dramatic, he waits to like kill Neo by pulling Neo's plug because he wants to he wants to stick it to Trinity, who he knows is in love with Neo. And he, he wants, wants to glow. Neo. He wants to rub it in. If you're a, a little bit older than us, you'll remember the the James Bond where they have have the laser getting ready to cut him in half, but he has to uh, reveal oh, yeah. his secret evil plan, right? Yeah, he was re- he was revealing his secret evil plan and. If Neo is fated to be the one and save humanity, like all Cypher had to do is pull that and it would have been done. But turns out when he shot Tank, who was also there and thought he killed them, Tank like turns out not to be dead, then shoots Cypher and kills him. Thus, fate is back on track. And so I made a tweet about this earlier um, in the week. And it's it's a stupid tweet. Like the meme I used was horrible. But like, I think it's very interesting to think about Norse mythology and how relied it is on fate. Like, was it free will or fate on Hymir's part to want to cut the line, or is it a mixture of both? No, that's it's an interesting. The other part is maybe at least where I go is that Hymir is in kind of an agent of fate. So Thor, mm-hmm. through his free will, he's determined to go track down Jormungand and kill him. Yeah. But it's not the right time, right? So no matter how bad Thor wants to, of his free will, try to accomplish this thing, it goes back. It was kind of like like you had in that Matrix uh, analogy, right? Tank was the guy that was still alive. 
Yeah, Tank. Um, it was Tank and his brother Dozer. Dozer ended up actually dying, and then Tank was not, and then he shot Cipher. The idea that Tank is an, an agent of the of fate, right? So that something had to show up to to save Neo, right? So he could continue on. Yeah. Yeah, and in this story, actually, I guess if uh, Hymir was an agent of fate, that makes sense because he is a giant, and the giants fought with. Uh, you know, the uh, the creatures of Ragnarok or Loki's children who brought on Ragnarok. So maybe Heimer knew he had to protect Jormungandr, but then why go through this whole thing of bringing Thor out on a boat? <laughs> so it's it's very cool to think about, but we don't have to waste too much time on that. But No, but I'll, I'll tie back into that at the end, or remind me to, because it, it does tie into my thoughts on it as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so did you want to, that's the Proseta, um, Gilfagen in chapter 48. Um, did you want to go ahead and move on to Hins Theta in the Poetic Edda? Yeah, so that no, that's let me think a little bit. Kind of one of those things to know, as I was saying, that you know, in some ways you could call it kind of a a flawed document. It's not a very consistent story. The way Snorri tells it, right, a little more in the prose edda, a little more of a consistent story, right? In the poetic edda, it's yeah, it's a theory I've read. It, it was I think it's the Oxford translation of the poetic edda. They do talk a little bit about this idea that maybe it is three different poems combined, right? And and we'll see that as we go through. The idea would be that it's the story that is in the prose edda that Sean just told is in the middle. And it actually takes the place of the Utgarda Loki story that we read last week, because it is on either side of it, there's a story very similar to that part where uh, where Theophi is brought into the story of Utgard Loki. So that idea would be that Snorri made a uh, an edit and moved around things, or he made kind of a, it's a question, where did that Utgard Loki story come from? Because I don't think it's in any other source anywhere else, right? So did yeah. um, Snorri make it up or it's a good question. Yeah. And it would make, I mean, it would make sense. Like uh, if, if like Snorri did make it up and didn't use this based on any other source material, it, it would make sense for him to say, well, yeah, here the God Thor, the mighty Thor fails, or he's humiliated by Utgard Loki. He fails in this story to catch Jormungandr. Of course he want like, that might be part of his like whole thing of humanizing the gods um, because yeah. he believes in the Christian God. Well, it's a, the, the the fishing story is such an important story because I've I've been reading that it's in a lot of like it's in rune stones, it's in some artworks that are much older. So it was clearly uh, existing before they even wrote it into the poetic edda. But if Snorri kind of looked at this poem and said like, you know, this thing is kind of a mess. It's sort of a mix of a few different things. He might have done some some editing, restructuring. But he liked the fishing story, so he left it as uh, chapter forty-eight. Right? Yeah, that's my, that's my thought. But, and there's some some researchers, some scholars. I'm not just making that up out of nowhere. But in any case, John, did you want to talk about the uh, Aegir? Aegir, because this yeah, is another yeah. one where because uh, he was we've, we've talked about him before. Yeah, yeah. Um, you'll see in Hemsvida the character of Aegir appears in the first in the first few stanzas. I found this very interesting because he's he's all over the poetic edda. He appears in this week's poem, Hymnsvida, where he's mentioned at the beginning, and apparently Thor and the rest of the Aesir look to him as the god who throws parties, which prompts the entire story in their initial quest. If you look at Grimnismal, which we have not had an episode on as of yet, but I've mentioned it a lot, and it's one of my favorite poems, he also appears to be known as somebody who hosts parties and feasts in the words of Odin. So with Grimnismal, you have Odin speaking, and I'm going to briefly read stanza 45. I have shown my face in the presence of gods. Now help is on its way. It will come to all gods on Aegir's benches when they drink at Aegir's place. So you'll see they, they drink at Aegir's place. And then in Locusena, which we're going to probably cover in the next couple months, um, Aegir was the one hosting the party that Loki drunkenly crashes. So those are his primary mentions in the Poetic Edda. He is the guy that throws all the parties. Then in the Prosetta, if you, if you remember his name, it's because... 
if you look at the pro setup, we've just we just reviewed a story from Gil Foganine, which is a story which I guess the narrator is three beings high, just as high in third, telling the story of the Norse gods to a character named Gilfi, who's the king of Sweden, who disguises himself in the name of Gang- Gangleri. He goes by that alias. Then with Skald Skapermal, the next part of the Proseta, you have the god Bragi explaining some of the Norse stories to Aegir, who we know from the Poetic Edda is also a god. So I just find this very interesting that Aegir is like the means, he's like the listener in Skald Skapermal, but he's also a god in the Poetic Edda who um, is known for throwing parties. Yeah. And in some places, they'll say that, you know, of course, Snorri wants to say they're all just humans, right? None of them are actually yeah. gods. Uh, in some places, they say that, that Aegir is a, a giant, although like Loki is pretty much a giant as well, but he's also a god, right? So it's the distinction between giants and gods is a little unclear. And so this is one of my kind of personal theories. And I was wondering what you thought, Sean, if that Aegir might be Nord. So Nord is the father of Frey and Freya, who came from the Vanir. So that he's also a sea god. Both Aegir and Nord are both sea gods. And there was somewhere I read this week that talks about, it's in one of the original sources, that Aegir is referred to as sleeping with his sister. I think maybe this is one of Loki's digs at him, uh, that he, in, incest, that he sleeps with his sister. And that's a thing I've read before, a possibility that, that Nord, and there's this old German god, uh, Nerthus, that they might've been sibling lovers that gave birth to Frey and Freya, who are also twins and the lover gods. Just wanted to see what your thought are on that, Sean. As I come up with my own theories, you're coming up with your own kind of, uh, yeah. of Norse mythology. Yeah. I mean, I, like I, I, when I saw these notes and I, like, I'll be honest, I didn't look too much into this, but I saw the notes and I like quick, I put it in the Google uh, search bar really quick. And it does say that like Aegir might be the giants or the Jotun version of the sea god. And this is where everything just gets entirely convoluted because, you know, all the gods are pretty much descendants of giants or have some blood relation to giants. So it's very interesting you say that. And then I do know- That's the question, right? Are the the Vanir giants too, right? Because we know other than- that basically Aesir really just means it's the, the father's last name, right? There was one God who was uh, Odin's grandfather, right? And his sons are kind of all Aesir, but all the mothers are Jotun, right? Yeah, so his all the grandfather Buri and then his father Bor, but like Bor married a uh, giantess and yeah, and so did Buri. It's like a whole thing. This yeah. goes back to like our season zero episode two episodes when we just reviewed the nine worlds and we were like, Oh, everyone's related to everyone. Everyone could be everything. So yeah. Well, that's what, cause there, yeah. there's, as I've read theories about who is Nord, where does he come from? That Nerthus was, you know, for a very long time, going back hundreds and hundreds of years was a kind of water related uh, goddess. So it's kind of an earth mm-hmm. goddess, but also tied into the water and whether when they created Nord or he made his way to uh, Scandinavia, was he sort of a, a non-gendered being that could give birth to children, right? So sort of both male and female, or was it a pair of siblings that have incest? And then it's, all, all these things in mythology are very fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, anyway, last thing I will say about um, yeah. Aegir is that in Scott Scoppermall, when they give a brief introduction of him, they mentioned that he is from an island called Hlesi. And Hlesi is an island that actually rests between Denmark and Sweden and is also a little bit south of Norway. So okay. I thought that was pretty cool. Then I, I looked it up in. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I looked it up and like, um, I, I Googled, I work, excuse me, I Wikipedia that, that island and it's like, oh, it's, it's well known to be an island from the stories in Norse mythology. So I think it'd be cool to like go there one day and see if there's anything like left over, which I doubt, I'm sure it's like very commercialized at this point, but I just thought that was very cool to tie it into like modern day uh, islands. I really wonder if that's near the island that in a uh, Tacitus, so the Roman from like the year 100 mm-hmm. talked about where 
that's where the, the cult of Nerthus would, it was an island and they'd pull out her wagon and there'd be a priest on there saying that the goddess has arrived and she's on the wagon. And then they would have all their slaves clean off the wagon and they drown all the slaves as a human sacrifice. And this was a thing that Tacitus witnessed. Um, if it's that same island, that'd be something. But. Yeah, I think it's going to be funny when we decided to do a midweek episode in three days and like, we're like, we're, right, we, we made it, we made it to the islands and like, we're on this like Indiana Jones, like crusade yeah. and... <laughs> It sounds like there's some something powerful there that I don't want to mess with. Yeah, that's my thought. Yeah. Should I uh, should I read the the poetic Edda version? And we'll take a f- we'll we'll stop in between as there's interesting things to comment on within the poem. But yeah, yeah, definitely good. Okay. So this was from yeah the Oxford translation by Carolyn Larrington. In bygone days, the slaughter gods had a good bag from hunting. They were keen to drink before they had enough. They shook the twigs and looked at the augury, and they found that Aegir had an ample supply of cauldrons. So the idea is they're shaking the twigs. Uh, they're using blood magic to figure out where are they going to go get drunk. So that, to me, that's a very fun image there um, to tell the future. Where, where are we supposed to get a good cauldron to brew some beer? The mountain dweller sat there, cheerful as a child, very like the mash blender's son. Odin's son looked into his eyes with defiance and said, you shall prepare a feast for the Aesir. So th- this is one that I put a post on Instagram because... There's a word in, this is why I got so fascinated with this poem. There's a word in here that like nobody can translate. It's hard to find it anywhere else. The word in uh, Old Norse is miskor blinda. And so at different times throughout history, it was translated as either maybe misshapen, like miskor, or maybe as blind, right? That when, when Thor, when Odin's son Thor looked him in the eyes, he either went blind or he, he was a misshapen giant. Or her translation is that he's the, the mash blender's son, that he makes beer mash. So it's one of those kennings that uh, yeah. unless you know that his, him or his father are uh, brewers, what, what is a mash blender? But I think the, the way it made sense to me is I looked at all the different translations they've done over the years. It's like when Thor shows up and then the giant pees himself, right? It made, made yeah. him feel very small. That's kind of the idea, I think. But sure. In any case, uh, the contentious man annoyed the giant. He thought how to avenge himself on the god. He asked Sif's husband to fetch him a cauldron in which I can brew ale for all of you. The idea is because he, he's upset at Thor. He's like, well, I can't make beer for you unless uh, give me a bigger cauldron. Right? Yeah. And that they use that, that kenning, right? Rather than just calling him Thor, they say Sif's husband. Know, yeah. Sif's husband. Right. So it's kind of be like, a, you know, <laughs> it was like, hey, Sean's wife, go get me that. Right. Like that's not a polite way to address somebody. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> In any case, nor could the glorious gods, the mighty powers, get one anywhere until privately, Tyr, in trustworthy friendship, gave vital good advice to Halordi, which is Thor's other name. So Tyr said, to the east of Elvagar lives Hymir, the very wise, at the sky's end. My father, the brave man, owns a cauldron, a capacious kettle a league deep. So this is the place where uh, Tyr comes into the story. And Sean will talk more about the god Tyr. It's interesting because there's this line where it says, my father, the brave man, owns a cauldron. It, it's a little, it's just so you look at the construction of the sentence, it could be kind of like he's talking back to Thor and being like, you know, my good man, I know someone who owns a cauldron, right? Or he's saying that his father owns the cauldron, right? And then it's the question, who is Tyr's uh, father? But this is my, my suspicion that actually, is this really Tyr or is it meant to be Loki? And is that they kind of had some, some odd construction of this poem, right? That maybe they were substituting one god for the other or something. Because we know that Loki is very much has connections to giants. The rest of the story, as, as you hear the rest of the story, think about like, doesn't it make sense that Loki's going to visit his, his family, basically? 
And I did find an old source that's in, in every other source except here. Tyr is a, either a son of Odin or we don't really know who his uh, parentage is. Yeah. And what were your thoughts? Yeah. So on that note, and again, I, I mentioned this earlier, like all the um, the Aesir are like have some blood relation with giants. So if you just have a random like person, like Aesir god, it's not unlikely that one of its parents may be a Yotun. So like, I'm not too sure we should put too much thought into it. However, to your point, I'm pretty sure this is the only story that Tyr, that, Tyr, that, that involves Tyr going on a quest. Right. He has a, he has a huge part in the story that that ultimately brings on uh, you know Ragnarok, which we're going to get into, I'm sure at some point. But like I think this is the only one where he links up with Thor, where Thor does link up with Loki every now and then. So it's a, it was very interesting when you put that in there. I was like, nah, like we can't really assume it's Loki. We should assume it's Tyr because that's what it says. However, it would kind of make sense if there is like some there's something that should be changed if that it's, if it, that's there. Yeah. And it's one of the, and then that's, it could be the question, right? They wrote this beginning part and it's tear, but was the rest of the poem a story with Loki? And they wanted to mash these poems together, right? And mm -hmm. another good thing to know is that the word tear is actually, so it's an old Indo-European word. So this is like far before the year 100 AD, that tear just meant God. So it just kind of meant the sky God. So yeah. they'll call Odin victory tear. So they use whatever the old Norse word is for victory and put it with the word tear. So maybe they were saying, you know, like, somebody tier right so the the god of something right so we, we kind of know it's a god but i think uh, yeah that's my thoughts on it no that's that's very interesting um i, I am gonna i'm gonna discuss tears um how tier is i guess described in the pro setup really quick going back to gilfaganine um again chapter 48 being uh the story of thor the fisherman which this episode is based on obviously i guess gilfaganine is set up to provide a brief story from the beginning to end and some, like it provides the main stories of the Norse gods, but it also has some chapters that are just specifically on describing the Norse gods. So chapter 25 is on the god Tyr. And I'm going to briefly describe a couple of first sentences just to show you to show you the explanation by story of who Tyr is. So Tyr is the name of another of the Aesir. He is the boldest and most courageous, and it is very much up to him who wins a battle. For men of action, he is good to invoke. The expression goes that a man is tear courageous if he is the type who advances out in front, never losing his courage, meaning in battle, of course. Tear is so wise that a clever person is said to be tear wise. Um, so I just wanted to include that little note there by Snorri. Let's see. Do you want to talk about the Fenrir story? I know we've talked in other episodes, but what were your thoughts? Yeah, that's going to be for a later episode. For later. Okay. Yeah. And uh, no, and, the, and one of my other thoughts to try to you know really argue my position that we're talking about Loki, right? So maybe, you know, the, that as we think about the, this, the, the story is very much a parallel for the Utgarda Loki story we just talked about, right? And there was that question, right? Why is Utgarda Loki doesn't show up anywhere else? And he has practically the same name as Loki. And what does all of that mean? Is this thought that if, this, if Hymir is the father, then we're kind of visiting Loki senior, right? So that Utgarda Loki might've actually been kind of like Loki's father, or at least a, a, a the king from the, the, you know, a town where all of the Lokis come from, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> my, my weird ways of trying to put it, but let's see. So this is where it becomes very much like last week where Thialfi shows up. So it says, they journeyed hard that day and far from Asgard until they came to Egil. He secured their goats with splendid horns, and they headed towards the hall, which Hymir owned. The lad found his grandmother, very ugly she seemed to him. Nine hundred heads she had, and another woman, all gold deck, walked forward, with shining brows and bearing beer to her boy. So when I really enjoyed this alliteration, the with shining brows bearing beer to her boy. 
sorry, that's my poetic <laughs> appreciation. Yeah. But, but the idea of who is the lad, right? Is Thor the lad? But no, this is not Thor's grandmother, we don't think, right? Is, no. is Tyr the lad, right? Is this Tyr's grandmother? Or is there this other lad who came from the home of Egil? And this is his grandmother's place. There's a thing at the end that explains again why this is Thialfi in my reading of it. So we're in this case, Thialfi is actually a giant. He's not just uh, you know a little boy that's the you know the the son of some farmer. Goes back to why does he have superpowers that he's the fastest uh, being in the universe, right? But we know it's the giant named Egil, and there's this grandmother with 900 heads who is hideous. John, did you have any thoughts on that? Nothing too much. I, I try to do some very, very brief research to see like what the significance was. But I think it, it might just be that the number nine, which we see all the time in Norse mythology, is in the number 900. But also, I think it might just be another way to show how hideous, uh, you know, potentially Tyr's grandmother is. Yeah. It's interesting because that type of a being shows up as I'm reading, uh, as I finished actually just reading Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, that there's um, in the Buddhist mythology, the Buddha sitting under the tree and trying to meditate and to show how powerful he is that his meditation can't be shaken. There's like 600 headed beings and you know 500 armed beings and all these things with very large numbers like that showing up and trying, you know, they should be able to terrify him, but he's just you know, so Zen in his meditation that they cannot uh, scare him, they cannot shake him. And then even the Greek myths, there's these beings, the hundred handers, that are kind of like these hideous uh, titans that they need to keep in the underworld, or else they would come and destroy all of civilization. Mm. So that's I can't remember if there's something like that in the Book of Revelations. I need to go back and read the Book of Revelations, but I like all these connections in the mythology. Yeah, definitely. All right. So now we come to you know we're talking about this Thor the fisherman. This is now how this beginning story and Thialfi and all of this connects to why does Thor need to go fishing? So misshapen, stern-minded Hymir came back late from hunting. He came in the hall, the icicles tinkled. When he came in, the old man's cheek forest was frozen. So his his beard is his cheek forest. Uh, I like that. Which one. might be one of my favorite kennings That's of all time. <laughs> and if you've ever had, if you've ever been out in a blizzard and you actually had a beard and you got ice in your, uh, in your beard. Uh, it's your cheek forest. It's a great, it's a great uh, greetings, Hymir. Be of good humor. Now our son has come to your hall. He who we expected on his long journey, Harad's adversary accompanies him, the friend of warriors, Veor is his name. So many ways to say, uh, we're glad you're home, dad. Uh, your son came to visit you, but he brought the killer of giants with you, right? See where they sit under the hall gable. They protect themselves so with a pillar in front of them, asunder the pillar splintered at the giant's gaze just before the crossbeam broke in two. So that, that Hymir is upset that Thor is in his home, uh, whether he just stares at the pillar of his house so hard that it breaks, or did he do something else to break it, right? He's, uh, what, what is your take on it, John? Yeah, it was weird. He definitely broke his own home. Yeah. But like my main takeaway was that he may have been, I guess, Tyr and Thor were hiding until they were announced. Yeah. And then Hymir end, ends up punching his own house in frustration. Right. So that goes back to maybe Thor is kind of small, right? That he's sitting, sitting at the table, but he's hidden by a pillar. So his, maybe his wife says when he gets home, your son's here. And also uh, he brought Thor and he couldn't see them until, and then when he does, he gets, yeah, he gets mad and smashes his home. And in any case, eight kettles smashed to pieces, but one of them, a strong forged cauldron fell whole from the pig forward. They went and the ancient giant turned his gaze on his enemy. His mind didn't speak, encouraging to him when he saw the one who makes the giantess weep walking across the floor. Then three bulls were taken, and the giantess ordered them to be quickly boiled up. So this, this was my thought. We'll come back to the, uh, the archetype of Thor uh, being hangry. But as you know, um, 
Hymir comes in and he's uh, smashing his house. So she's like, let's, let's kill three bulls and get you guys fed. So you stop, don't kill each other. That's my thought. My yeah. take on it. I also think uh, it like, I'm not sure if that counts as a canning, but the one who makes the giants his weep. Oh yeah. I would say, right. Yeah. In Thor. Yeah. Another name for Thor, right. Cause he kills all the giants there leaves the, uh, the widow, the widow maker. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about the oxen. Uh, Each one they made shorter by a head and bore them off to the cooking pit. Sif's husband ate before he went to bed. On his own, he ate right up two of Hymir's oxen. So this is the Thor eats them out of house and home. And if, he, if he's basically, they tell him in the next couple stanzas that Thor, if you're going to eat more with us, you got to go catch some fish. You got to go catch some whales because you ate all of our giant oxen. So yeah, this, this goes back against that Thor is not following the Havamal virtues, right? You, you go to your friend's house. He offers you two hams. You eat one. You don't eat all the hams. And the, yeah, the, the, this part that Thor, he eats too much. He drinks too much. If there's not enough food to satisfy him, he's going to get hangry, right? Yeah, but it's also Heimer is or Hymir is kind of following the Havamal virtues where he's like providing food for his guests, even though he knows who his guest is and he hates his guests. But maybe he maybe he's going against the Havamal virtue of knowing your enemy, but like maybe he's keeping his enemy close in this case. So and then I'm it just came to my head right now, right? But it's this idea like they're not regular oxen, they're giants oxen, right? So if Thor is like six feet tall, but he's with these 30 feet tall giants and they have 30 feet tall oxen, but yet Thor still ate two of them. I'm just thinking about the physics for that. It doesn't really add up. He eats a lot, yeah. Oh, and that, yeah, uh, we won't won't uh, diverge well, too much. But that I was thinking about that the uh, the seven deadly sins of uh, that Thor actually meets quite a few of them, both um, gluttony, overeating, over drinking, um, his wrath and his anger, and uh, trying to think if there was something else. Yeah. Well, so I, I just like I saw your notes there, and I was just gonna make a joke about like I was gonna make a joke to ask you if like one of the archetypes one of the primary archetypes was like debauchery or something like that. Right. And it also reminds me of like, like, I guess the character of Thor, like overindulging. Um, we know he's fat in Avengers Endgame, um, which in that case is primarily due to lose, like losing his purpose or like, you know, some form of depression, but he's also apparently fat in the new video game, God of War Ragnarok, which I've never played. I may have mentioned this in previous episodes, but food and drink consumption seem to be pretty consistent for him in pop culture, but we'll also see that he eats a ton for his wedding. In future episodes, he drinks a ton at Utgard, Loki's castle. And he's also very upset when, you know, Hrungir, the giant, is drinking from his horn. So there's like this consistent thing where Thor is hungry and, or like eats and drinks, eats, eats and drinks a lot, but he gets angry if he's not fed. No, and that goes back, right? That the, the Havamal is Odin trying to teach these lessons that his son just can't learn, right? So that kind of yeah. connects a lot of our <laughs> different stories together. Yeah. Nice. And then this is just one of my favorites that it has, as I was saying, like it's just packed with the kennings. So it says, the Lord of Goats told the ape's offspring to row the launchway horse out further. But the giant said for his part, he wasn't eager to row further out. So he's afraid of the Midgard serpent, right? But so that Thor is the Lord of Goats. He has goats pulling his uh, his cart. Apparently the ape's offspring is what you call the giants. Uh, not very uh, friendly. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sympathetic. And then the launchway horse is your boat. I guess it's that it's like a horse that travels and the launchway kind of the dock, I guess, or where you, the ramp, get your boat on. Yeah. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Any case, if you, if you don't understand these are kennings, right. That's a very funny sentence to think about. The Lord of goats told the apes offspring to row the launchway horse, right. <laughs> Unless once you learn this language, right. Of all these symbols before that, you would have no idea what any of that means. Right. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. But that's a good way to tell the story. As we mentioned in the uh, Meet a Poetry episode, when we discussed Kennings, like someone's going to say, wait, what does the Lord of Goats mean? Oh, well, Thor has two goats. 
here, like, here's what they do, you know, things like that. Right. Once you know all this, right. Yeah. Then of course, who else would the Lord of goats be? Right. It's just obvious. Right. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so then here, uh, we're talking about the Midgard serpent, the sea wolf shrieked and the rock bottom echoed all the ancient world was collapsing. There's a missing line and then fish sank itself into the sea. So the poem's incomplete there. There's just a line that, that you know, the document was too damaged, but then the prose edda that Snorri wrote, he must've had a good version because he kind of knew what, what goes here. Sean, do you remember any of how it goes or I can just summarize it? Um, well, that, is that when like Hymir cuts the line because he's so afraid? Yeah, there would be something about how terrified he was of the... Yeah, yeah he, like, well, the Thor was like about... To, yeah, Thor was like almost about to get Jormungandr on the boat. And right. Hymir was like, oh shit, like I, this is why I wanted to stay closer to the coast. So I'm going to cut the line. Yeah. And it's interesting that Jormungand is the sea wolf, right? Where uh, some of, one of Loki's other children is the wolf uh, Fenrir, right? So... Yeah. Kind of makes sense. Let's see. And so then there's kind of a couple other stanzas where uh, Thor and Hymir, they row back to shore. So he doesn't throw Hymir overboard, but he's uh, very pissed off about how the fishing trip went. And the whole time Hymir is giving Thor a hard time. He's like challenging him. Well, if you're so strong, why don't you row the boat yourself, right? If, if you're so strong, lift my boat and carry it back to the house. If you're so strong. Why don't you carry my whales with you? The whales we caught back home, right? Because Thor didn't catch anything. So now Heimer's like, well, since you didn't catch anything, how about you carry my whales, right? And just really giving Thor a hard time uh, challenging him right, this whole way home. It's one of the thoughts is, it, you know, it didn't immediately read that way to me, but thinking of like the Utgard Loki story, right? Coming up with three challenges to uh, try to make Thor feel weak, right? Would be one way to think about that. But Yeah, definitely. See. And then there's a the part where he's saying, yeah, and Heimer's like, he keeps going on about how Thor's really not that strong. He can't carry the boat or he's, he can't carry all the whales. He says, uh, Heimer says that you're not strong unless you can smash my wine goblet. So Thor takes the wine goblet and he's smashing it through wooden pillars and the goblet just won't break until the beautiful beloved lady gave him vital friendly advice, which she knew. Smash it on Heimer's skull, the food-sated giant. That's harder than any goblet. The strong man, Lord of Goats, rose, bracing his knees, brought all of his divine power to bear. Whole was the whole man's helmet stump above and the round wine vessel broke apart. He laments that he may never brew beer again if Thor is in fact strong enough uh, to carry the cauldron. So this is that, uh, I think it's his wife. Right? It is think, his wife, I think, yeah. yeah. I was about to say that, I'm pretty like, sure it's his wife. Yeah, you're right. If Thor, trying to Thor, help you, out her son's friends. Yeah, you're, like, you're having a hard time breaking this goblet? This guy's got the hardest head you've ever seen. <laughs> you can smash the goblet on there. And then so he's kind of sad that his wine vessel is broke. And then he's like, okay, Thor, you broke the wine vessel that I thought you couldn't break. You can have my kettle uh, if you can carry it, basically. And so Thor, he manages to lift up the cauldron. He's carrying it away. That's why they came here in the first place. And then an army of, la of lava giants follows him, which I assume are sent by Hymir. They don't say. but I uh, believe so, yeah. yeah. And Thor slays them all. Uh, they discover. and Okay, yeah. So he slays all the, those giants, the whole army of them. And then, they, and then they discover that his goat's leg is lame. And they say it's from Loki's deception. Then they say that the father has to pay with his two children. So that's at the end here, they clarify that, that this was Theophi involved here mm -hmm. somehow, right? That he's with Thor as Thor leaves um, Hymir's home. And that they don't say it's Aegil, I don't think, but it's you know trying to put all the pieces together, the giant Aegil. But they say that it's Loki's deception. So that's where that Neil Gaiman was correct that yeah. these things should go together somehow. Although, and so I missed that last week's episode when I was like, yeah, I think that was just Gaiman trying to fill in the pieces. Um, right. But like it definitely, he got it from something. And it, was it wasn't a story. It's this next, uh, it's not even this, yeah, it's not even the chapter in the prose edda. It's you got to look to the poetic edda 
trying to put yeah. all these pieces together, right? But yeah, the, you know, the, the goat was kind of pulling them, but eventually his leg snaps because it had been broken when, <laughs> when they chopped the goat up in pieces and they ate the goat, but then magically put him back together. And so... Uh, so pretty much the story of how Thor like meets Thiafi is discussed in the Prosetta and the story of Utgard Loki, but it's uh it's in this story and how like Thor's fishing trip um in the Poetic Edda. Right. So they don't yeah. say it's Thiafi. They don't use that name, but they say that there's a father who has to pay with his two children because yeah. the goat's leg is lame by a deception of Loki. Right. So you kind of gotta read between the lines, put all the pieces together, and then uh, it all ends with and now the gods drink with delight ale every winter at eight years and so that's uh who probably yeah. did not want to host everybody and he probably oh. did not think they were going to find a cauldron a mile deep right right no and john um, i really liked your i really wanted to mention your note that's in there that um the Havamal virtues right that, that oh yeah here accepts you know welcomes thor into his home he knows he has to do hospitality even if thor eats all his oxen but then once you get him to leave you can send the army out to kill him right that's that's the extent of your hospitality <laughs> Well, yeah, and it's funny because I think earlier in the uh, the story as well, like he he encourages Thor to use like an ox, like one yeah. of his ox for bait, yeah. and then Thor goes and cuts off one of their heads and puts it on his like line, and then and then Heimer gets upset at him right. for doing like what he asked. So he's like, "All right, fine, do it because I'm supposed to, but I hate you for it." And so. then and this just goes, yeah. So that's that's the that's the poem. But one of my interpretations that I realized as I was reading back through it. That it's very similar to the meat of poetry story in some ways, right? Because now they have their own magic cauldron. They can make their own mead, right? So they drink and then they learn how to speak poetry because they got drunk. So that that a lot of these stories have something similar in it, right? But that time it was Odin going on a hero's journey to get. And they made a big deal out of that cauldron where the mead was kept, right? And now we have a different story. Thor goes on the adventure, but he brings back a cauldron to, to aid the gods being inspired to write poetry. Yeah, definitely. Seems like it fits. John, any other thoughts on that? The difference from the poetic to the prosetta that kind of stood out to you? It's, I, I think it's it's very interesting because first of all, in the poetic out of this poem, which may be originally three separate poems has many kennings, but it's also like a more detailed version than the prosetta, which you would think would be the opposite. If a, po- if a story is written in prose, like you have the ability to like not be confined by like having to po- like write a poem and just like write out what happened. But I feel like this version, the poetic edit is much more, it has much more substance, if that makes sense. Whereas like Snorri just kind of like briefly went through it. No, and, that, and that's why I said earlier that I really, I really do enjoy this poem, right? And it's, it's a very flawed document, but that makes me think that the details are very real, right? There's even a possibility mm-hmm. that the people, whoever was writing this in was like the year 1100, didn't actually even understand entirely what they were keeping. They just knew these are all the pieces. These are all these kennings. We want people to understand the poetry or remember the poetry. So we're putting it in here, but that it doesn't, it doesn't make sense in order. But like you're saying, some of the things feel really true. There's this depth of detail that I don't think they made up, right? It's, you know, some things like, should this be tear? Maybe they made that up, but like that uh, Thor eats the guy out of house and home and then smashes him in the head with the goblet, right? Like I think that happened. Yeah. <laughs> in any case. And just a quick correction, the uh, Prosetta by Snorri was written in like 12, uh, 20, 1230. Yeah. The Poetic Edda was actually recorded down later than that, but it, based on like um, the poems itself, you know that it was like they were taken from uh, writings from well before then, like yeah. even way before Snorri. And you see like Snorri and often many of his stories quoting these poems as well. So I think that's very interesting just to right. understand. I, think that I saw that some of the stories could have been written maybe as early as year 900. Maybe that's a little too early. Uh, maybe but, even before. Yeah, yeah. I think it's hard to that, tell. 
but that a lot of them weren't maintained, right? The paper, whatever they were written on fell apart, but that people, you know, the, 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 they had access to those older stories as they're putting this together, right? So that's makes it very interesting trying to figure out what is the, what are the old stories? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so David, talk to us about your thoughts as the uh, psychology expert in well, this podcast. Right, and it's on psychology, but it's especially on the kind of that aspect of mythology that, um, you know, the Jungian psychology, they take the idea of that myths are a, a way we represent the archetypes that are in our unconscious, right? So they're things that show up in our dreams, and that's what inspired people possibly to write some of these stories. So there's a couple things here with Thor the fisherman, right? So one is that it's a Jormungand, right, is the... It's not, it's not a fish, right? It's a giant serpent, kind of like a giant dragon. So this idea of the hero's stories in so many mythologies lead to the hero slaying a dragon. And sometimes they'll say that represents the feminine, the whole story of why that is, but basically it's kind of the, they call it the great and terrible mother, right? So it's not just a, your mom, who is hopefully very wonderful, right? But it's this idea of the, the mother goddess who both creates and destroys, right? Is kind of has power over life, right? Life and death would be the idea. Um, something about that is what the dragon represents. It's a thing that's terrifying, right? It's sort of the, the repressed feminine would be another way to say that, right? The, the Actually, there's an aspect of yourself that's feminine, but you don't want to look at that if you're a male, right? So yeah. for the hero, has to somehow face the thing they're most terrified of and confront it. But what's interesting about your Mungund is more than just being a dragon that maybe could represent either chaos or the great and terrible mother would be the idea of the Ouroboros, so, John, have you ever heard that word before? I don't think I have now. It's, it's only as I started studying like the, the Jungians who are interested in mythology. The Ouroboros is a symbol, which is a snake eating its tail. Um, it's okay. an old symbol that is shown a lot throughout some, some very old cultures. And it's this idea. So, I don't know, John, we're, we're already explicit, right? So, I don't have to worry about if anyone's no, worried. Let it fly. If anyone's worried about David being explicit, here's where it comes at the end. That So, the snake is phallic right? is masculine. It's a long snake, right? But you put it into a circle and now it's also feminine. So that kind of, it's both. So this is the idea of, it's a symbol to represent maybe something like the universe or the, the gods before they separated into male and female. There was just one. So it's kind of like a hermaphroditic character is what they'll call it. Mm-hmm. It's undifferentiated, right? So it's a little more than the great and terrible mother. It's, it's the whole being, right? So it's kind of all the chaos before things separated, and then it's where you have sort of the, the masculine God separate from the earth mother, something like that. And, and then my other uh, kind of, so that, that would be that that represents kind of chaos. And that's what Thor is trying to conquer, right? So you said earlier, like it's something about fate. Thor is trying to conquer fate or master his fate, something like that. But that actually is trying to conquer this, this idea of both creation and destruction, the whole chaos of being. It's something that you can barely even kind of think about or put into words. It's, it's far too much to defeat, right? So when Thor is faced with it and he's trying to conquer it. And then fate says he can't, it's, it's too much. He's not there yet, right? Yeah. And the, the serpent goes back into the ocean, right? Goes back, going into the depths, going into the unconscious would be the, the phrasing of that. The other fun, this is for all my friends who enjoy listening to me talk about the, uh, the phallic sacrifice and things like that, that, that Thor has a fishing pole, that this actually, like the sword that most uh, David, would have. Come on. The fishing pole is the phallus, which he uses to slay the Ouroboros, right? So that's, uh, once you see it, then you can't unsee it, John. Thanks for putting that into my head. Yep. And you got to take your sword and you got to stab it into the dragon, right? And why? Because that's that's the way all myths work, right? Or as Thor says in the MCU, because that's what heroes do. <laughs> because that's what heroes do, John. What are, what are your thoughts on, uh, on how that relates back to our whole story of, uh, of Thor and, and his fishing trip? It was just an innocent fishing trip until David went there, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it more so represents Thor's failure and Snorri trying to like show, you know, how the Norse gods fail as a Christian, right. but I could be wrong. Those, those, I mean, those are the different ways to take it, right? So that, it's that question, right? Is this a story where, and then maybe Snorri liked that part of it. So he liked to emphasize that, right? The part of Thor's not that powerful, he fails, right? But also this idea that he's trying to contemplate and conquer things that are too big for us to master, right? That might be um, yeah. the ideas underneath it before before that, right? Because this idea, if it's a very old story, right? Why doesn't he get to slay the dragon besides that we need to keep uh, Jormungand alive for the for the final battle, right? Uh, sure. Any any other thoughts on the whole, uh, yeah, any, any other images or metaphors that I'm creating that you're wondering about? No, I was going to, like, I thought you were going to go, like, some uh, some direction with, like, Jesus being Jesus in the fish or something. Hmm. But maybe that's something for another episode. I wonder if I could go there. I definitely, yeah, I thought about that, that Christ on the cross is, is Odin on the world tree, right? It's uh, like Jesus uh, or Christ, like, breaking the fish or something. What are, what are the fish that feed the multitudes, right? But then Thor comes back empty-handed, so that's very interesting. Yeah, I'll have to think about that one. <laughs> <laughs> another reason why, another way Thor fails. Yeah, because a lot of ways I think Thor is kind of, the, the, yeah, that Jesus Christ is quite a complicated aspect. That he's somewhat the son, he's somewhat a hero, but he's also kind of a hero of peace and love, right? Where Thor is just anger, right? So the idea that, yeah, yeah. Thor just Hangriness. being, just being hangry, that doesn't feed the multitudes, right? That doesn't help you to be a king that can feed the rest. Thor needs something else to balance him out. I'd say that's correct. Yeah, so I like that part. Awesome. Uh, I had some other notes there on, uh, when we talk more about Loki, I'll bring some of these other notes back, my thought for this week. I, I, li- I like the story a lot. Yeah, I'm glad we, we addressed this one. Is the next one we're going to talk about more with um, bringing Loki back in again? Uh, yes, we are. It's still going to be part of our series on Thor, or the adventures of Thor, but it's going to be specific to Thor's wedding, which Loki does play a part. Good shot. Well, you have a good night, all right? You too. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Schossen vorher eil, die launische Forelle, vorüber wehen weil. Ich stand an dem Gestade und sah in Suseru, des muntern Fischleins Bade im klaren Becklein zu, des muntern Fischleins Bade im klaren Becklein zu. Ein Fischer mit der Rute, wohl an dem Ufer stand.